Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 75 of Yogaland. My guest today is Gretchen Rubin. Gretchen is a four-time New York Times bestselling author, and she's also the co-host of The Happier Podcast with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. Her most recent book is called The Four Tendencies, and it's a framework for figuring out how you respond to inner and outer expectations. Gretchen's book is really fun and thorough, and it's so well-constructed as an editor. The progression of this book makes me so happy (laughs) the way it's laid out. And as the host of this podcast, what stood out to me is that when we go to a yoga class or teach yoga class or do a teacher training, we are constantly responding to inner and outer expectations. So I thought it would be helpful to pick Gretchen's brain about this framework, about her framework and and how it relates to yoga. So we had a really fun conversation. She was of course incredibly helpful. She has so many ideas and so much knowledge. She's really a font of ideas and knowledge. So I know you will enjoy the interview. One more thing before we start, I would love to know what your tendency is after you listen to the interview or go to her website and take the quiz or read her book. Are you an upholder, an obliger, a questioner, or a rebel? And I think it would be really fun to get a little survey going. So if you would, post us photo of yourself on Instagram and say what your tendency is and use the hashtag YogalandStories. And also let me know if you are a yoga teacher or a student. And I'll let Gretchen know so she can add yogis to her pool of data. Okay, so enjoy the interview with Gretchen. Here goes. So thanks so much for being here today and talking with me. As I said, I'm, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. And I have long admired your work since The Happiness Project. I remember I got a copy of it when I was an editor at Yoga Journal. And I remember thinking like, this is the essence of why so many of us do yoga and meditation. We want to create good habits. And, you know, at the end of the day, we just want to be more functional and happier. Yeah. So in your new book, The Four Tendencies, you lay out a framework of personality profiles. And I think what's so interesting about it is that in order to figure out what your profile is, you consider how you personally respond to the expectations of others. Is that, am I characterizing it correctly? That's half of it. That's a big part of it. So the four tendencies looks at how you respond to outer expectations, which are the expectations that other people place on you, but then also the expectations that you place on yourself. So, you know, we all have things that we want to ask of ourselves that nobody else really cares about. So those are our inner expectations. So that combination of outer and inner expectations determines whether you're an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. Right, right, right. So maybe we could just walk through the different types to introduce people. You start with upholder usually, right? Because you're an upholder. Yes, that's right. I always, <laughs> I always put my tendency first, just for clarity. And I have a quiz, which people can take online, but most people don't even need to take a quiz. They can tell what they are just from a very brief description. But a mil- more than a million people have taken the quiz, which is at happiercast.com slash quiz. But again, a lot of people don't even need a quiz. So what's at issue is how do you respond to outer and inner expectations? So an outer expectation is a work deadline, a request from a friend. 
And inner expectation is your own desire to get back into practicing yoga, your own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. So upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. Upholders, and like you said, I'm an upholder, mm. upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet the work deadline, they keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what others expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they make everything an inner expectation. If it meets their standard, their inner standard, they'll do it. No problem. Mm. If it fails their standard, they will resist. And they tend to dislike anything arbitrary, inefficient, irrational. They always want to know why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. I got my first glimpse of this when a friend said to me, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, now I know she's an obliger. When she had a team and a coach, no problem showing up. But mm-hmm. when she's just trying to go on her own, she struggles. And then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. If you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. Very often, they don't want to tell themselves what to do. Like they wouldn't sign up for a 10 a.m. yoga class on Saturdays because they're like, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the fact that an instructor is waiting for me to be there at 10 a.m. kind of annoys me. Right, right, right. And rebels the, is the least common, right? That's Yes, like the smallest fairly... tendency is rebel, and then only slightly larger than rebel is upholder. The biggest tendency by, by, uh, by a long shot for both men and women is obliger. That is, you either are an obliger or you have many obligers in your life. That's the biggest one. And then the second largest one is questioner. I was wondering about the gender, like how it falls with different genders. So for obliger, it's it's the biggest for both men and women. Is it the same thing for questioners? Is, it, is that number two for men and women? Yeah, that's number two for both men and women. And you know, the thing is, I think a lot of times people ascribe to gender, like a lot of like, and I, and this was one of the things, this was a moment that was really helpful for me when I was coming up with these tendencies, because it took me months to grasp these tendencies that like melted my brain. But I remember I was doing an interview with a journalist and she said, why is it that busy moms like us can't take time for ourselves? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm a busy mom, but I don't have any trouble taking time for myself. And she said, well, you know what? Neither do I. And I'm like, yeah, because it's, it's not a busy mom thing. Mm-hmm. It's an obliger thing. Obligers, when people say they can't take time for themselves, that's an obliger thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes people think that it's something related to gender when, in fact, it's something related to just like an aspect of their personality, which men and women might, might both experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because I took your quiz twice and I thought that I would come out as an obliger, but I, I had some major life events in the past few years. I, I had my daughter five years ago and that was just like shifted a million things for me internally. And then a couple of years later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and that shifted a lot of the way that I take care of myself and sort of place myself in higher regard. Now I would just generally say, so I thought I would come out with like as an obliger, sort of moving toward upholder, but I came out as a questioner. (laughs) And I took it Mm. twice just to make sure. But when you just said that questioners don't like things that are arbitrary, like that is definitely me. I mean, it drives me just bonkers when things don't make logical sense. Right. So do you find, I mean, I know that you, you sort of show in the book this Venn diagram where things can Oh, you know, you can overlap. You could be like an upholder with a slash questioner with like a questioner subtype. Do you find that people can change their type? 
Well, that's a very interesting question, and you're a great example of this, because I think for the most part, people don't change their mm -hmm. tendency. I think these are hardwired. You're not one at 20 and one at 40. You're not one at work and one at home. It's just a hardwired aspect of your nature. That said, and, and I think that most people throughout their lives, I mean, you can argue there's all kinds of controversy about like how stable personality is and stuff like that. I think the common experience of mankind is that most people are pretty much, this, they are an identifiable personality throughout their lives. I certainly feel that way about myself. I feel like I'm the way that I was when I was seven years old. But there are people who go through transformative events. One is a brush with death. One is very serious illness. One is about of addiction. One is going on uh, prescription medication that has fundamentally, uh, you know, transformative uh, effects on your personality. There can be for some people something that really kind of changes them fundamentally. I think that is rare, but it definitely happens. And I have people in my life where I'm like, yeah, you know, you're just not the same person that you were five years ago. So I do think it's, it happens sometimes, but I think, I think sometimes people sort of think like, well, at work I'm this and at home I'm that. And I'm like, yeah, it's not that fluid. Yeah, I would say I'm definitely the same at home as I am at work. You know, one thing when I was reading the the book, and this is definitely like my own bias because I'm just a very emotionally driven person. And, you know, I did the Myers-Briggs eons ago and definitely related to that. I thought that was a really interesting test. So I wonder, the thing that came up for me, I so admire your upholder tendencies. Like when I listen to you, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, you're just a person that like you said in your book, like you just make a decision. And once you know it's the right decision for you, you just, you execute, right? So it made me wonder if you think that certain types might be more emotionally driven versus thought driven. I'm a very emotionally driven person. And I feel like I've had to kind of learn over the course of my life to like be more regulated. And so that if I have a passion, I can actually channel it and go through the thinking process to execute. Well, that raises a really, a really crucial aspect of the four tendencies. The four tendencies describe a very, very, very narrow aspect of your personality. Now, other frameworks, like you, you mentioned Myers-Briggs, and certainly other frameworks, try to kind of paint a whole picture of you. This does not do that at all. This tells you only one thing. How does a person respond to expectations? We could take 50 questioners, line them up, and depending on how analytical they were, how intellectual they were, how ambitious they were, how considerate of other people's feelings they were, how adventurous they were, how extroverted or introverted they were, how emotional they were, what their values were, all these things would make the people look completely different from each other. But as to one thing, how do they respond to expectations? If you ask or tell a questioner to do something, they're going to say, why should I? Mm -hmm. That is what it means to be a questioner. It doesn't tell you anything else about that person. Now, sometimes people say to me, like, well, all obligers are people pleasers or all upholders are super competitive, or all rebels are narcissistic, or all net rebels are creative, or all questioners are super intellectual. No, all that stuff can be mixed up in any which way. All we know is how you respond to an expectation. So I think it's it's very valuable to you that you know that you have this like ver this emotional component, and then that's really driving your thinking and your values and your perspective. That's just sort of like happening to one side as part of the makeup of your whole nature, but it doesn't really necessarily feed into your tendencies. For, for example, one thing many people say about rebels, like let's say you have a rebel boss. Well, rebels do what they want to do when they want to in their own way, in their own time. Often a questioner will say, this rebel is emotionally driven because they're just doing whatever they want. Yeah, so then they, they, to them, that reads as emotion. I would say it's not really quite emotion, you know, in the way I think people usually use that word, like I'm doing it for emotional reasons. It's more like, yeah, I'm going to do what I want when I want, mm -hmm. you know? 
but so different people kind of put different language on this stuff. So is, is it, that's an interesting combination. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. And then what about, I talk about parenting a lot on the podcast. Yeah. And I, I can't remember if I read it in the book or if I heard it in an interview that you did, but I remember you saying that you can't necessarily figure out your child's personality type. And I have like feel so strongly that my daughter is a, probably a questioner. I mean, it's just fascinating. Like, I'll just give you an example. She, I think it's so normal. She's only five, right? And of course, at this age, like they're asking questions about everything and they should, they're trying to figure out the world. They're trying to understand. But, you know, we've been big on please and thank you lately. And, you know, the other day I even said to her, like, Sophia, I shouldn't have to keep reminding you to say thank you when people hand you something, you know, to say thank you at this point. And she said, but why do I have to say please and thank you? And I had explained this so many times, like, well, because we care about other people's feelings and because, you know, just walking her through manners and being polite and being kind and all these things. And she was like, but why? You know, she just couldn't. It was like, it was like just not enough data <laughs> for her to right. accept it as part of reality. And it's reflected in her behavior. Like she will not unless I remind her. And again, I mean, I know this is normal. I don't mean to sound like I'm so hard on her. I'm not. But it's, it's just more like fascinating to me that where I see other kids in, you know, because we're around other kids her age all the time, like where I see other kids just kind of like getting in line when it's time to get in line or sitting in the mm -hmm. circle when it's time to, or putting on socks when it's time to go into school. She's just like, she's just like, but my feet are, are not hot. I mean, or, but my feet are not cold, you know? Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally fascinating. Sometimes you can't tell what a child is for a long time because children aren't autonomous in the way that adults are. So it can take a very long time to tell. Sometimes you can tell very early. Sometimes you can tell very, very early. And I've heard from many people who remember the moment when they sort of like, ha like a rebel who remembered, like realizing, gosh, Nobody can make me do something. So you can often, oh. your daughter sounds like a, like a questioner. She yeah. absolutely does. And so I would urge you, like if you're trying to figure out how to, how to work with this, one of the things that happens with questioners, and I've certainly heard this from many questioners, is that in school, just like in the workplace, this is something that doesn't go away, that they can be seen as, um, as being a stubborn, obstructionist, mm -hmm. not team players, disrespectful, because they're saying, well, why should I? Now, and the thing is for questioners to get on board, they have to get robust explanations. That is just what they require in order to do what's. So one thing you might try with your daughters, you might say like, well, why do you think this is, this is a custom? Why do you think there would be this custom? And let her explain to you why she thinks that that it might be that her own explanations to you, you know, often we can learn by teaching. And mm. if she's explaining to you, she might convince herself. That's one thing you could try. Or you could really just go over like if you don't say thank you, people will think you don't feel grateful or they'll think that you feel like you're better than you know, you might go through. Um, and then also some, she's pretty young, but some questioners can accept a second level of justification, which is like, I get it. You think this is because what she's thinking is like, this is just an arbitrary rule. Like, why do we say this thing at these times and not others? It doesn't make any sense. True enough. You could say to her, I get that you think that this is a kind of a silly rule. And you feel like, like, why do we waste our time in this kind of leaning, meaningless banter? Like, whatever. I get it. But the fact is, 
people are going to think that you're not a thoughtful, considerate, polite person if you don't do it. So can you do it? Or or like, or I'm going to feel like you're not showing consideration for other people. Can you do it because it matters to someone else, hmm. even if you don't think that it's justified? Just like somebody said to me, I don't see why I can't wear pants to church, but I know it drives my grandmother crazy. So I'm just like, okay, fine. I think it's silly, but I'm going to do it just because it's important to somebody else. Or like, I feel like this medical school assignment is a big waste of my time, but I know that I want the respect of this professor. So I'm just going to make myself do it because it's important to me to have the respect of my professor, even if I think that this assignment is an inefficient. So sometimes you can do that. Um, But the fact is they need those explanations. And it's heartbreaking to hear about all the questioners who are like, I just wasn't convinced that I had to memorize the multiplication table. So I just didn't do it, you Mm -hmm, know? And and it's like, well, if somebody had just sat down with you and had a conversation about that, you might've got with the program much more easily. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever people say like, oh, my kid is really smart and does well on tests, but refuses to do the homework. I'm like, bing, bing, bing. Sounds like a questioner who thinks that an assignment is stupid. So they're not going to do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's really helpful. And yeah, I mean, I found when my mom came to visit that like, I'm really accustomed to her questioning and actually probably because I'm a questioner, I enjoy answering most of her questions. Like I enjoy being like, well, this happens because of this. And I really try to talk to her. I've always tried to talk to her like an adult and give her like a very Mm. thorough explanation of things. But my mom was like, after a while, my mom would be like, Sophia, because I said so, you know? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Because I said so, because that's the way we've always done it, because kindergartners always have to do this, because this is what corporate says. Like, these are not compelling to questioners. They find it maddening. Yeah, totally doesn't work, like, at all. This is a good example of how sometimes it's a help for a child to have a parent of the same tendency because they tend to have more empathy for where, like, where that person is coming from. Like, I'm an upholder, and one of my daughters is an upholder, and I totally get it. She does things that don't make sense to other people. And I'm like, I 100% understand where you're coming from just because I've been there. So that's an advantage because she has a mother who really is saying, like, the world is not arbitrary. I'm not asking you to dumb things. If you don't understand, like, why this is important, let's talk about why this matters. And it's fun to ask questions. (laughs) And, you know, I can tell that, like, it's fun for her to, like, keep asking questions and, like, keep finding. She's actually you know, she's actually incorporating the information, the answer. It's not an arbitrary question. It's she really genuinely wants to know the answer. But it's just hard when I get to the end of the answer and she's still not satisfied. Well, you know, and that's another thing that you might do is questioners tend to love to gather information and research. And so if like you feel like she's kind of getting hung up on this manner thing, you could say like, well, you know what, this is what our the custom is where we are. But let's see, what do people in other countries do? Oh, this is interesting. These people bow instead of saying this or these people would do this. And so that, oh, that's yeah. interesting. Like, why do you and then like and like let her think it through and kind of um, feel like, oh, well, you know, sort of see it as part of a system of behavior and like culture and custom rather than a set of arbitrary rules that she's being assigned that don't make any sense to her. But if you're like, well, all over the world, people have these different rituals of expressing gratitude or saying hello and farewell. But you're right. It's like, it's kind of arbitrary what we do. So what do people in China do? What do people in Africa do? What do people- Yeah, no, that's great. More information. More information mm-hmm. that tends to be. And then maybe she also feels more ownership of it because she's like, I know a lot about manners from across the world. You know, that tends to be a very satisfying kind of thing for um, for questioners. Yeah, absolutely. I can totally see that. So I have a lot of yoga teachers who are listeners. And so this hmm. is like, this is a great framework, I think, for yoga teachers. And I would love to talk about it in that context a little bit. And I'll just share this one story with you. When I read your book and I was reading the rebel section, because I feel like I don't personally know a lot of 
rebels, but it is a very specific type and like things will come to mind. Well, things came to mind for me as I was reading that section. So I was remembering that when you go to a yoga class, there is often one rebel who no matter what the teacher is saying, like they're doing their own thing. They're just like, yep. <laughs> yep. can't tell me what to do. Yeah. Yep. And I can just remember, I would go to this class. I would go to this class during the day, like at noon. And there was just this one woman who it was in a very big, big classroom. And she would stand no matter what, if there were 50 people, if there were 20 people, if there were 10 people, she would stand in the front corner of the room by the window, literally doing like a dance, like doing her own. And she loved it. And she looked so happy. And she, and the teacher never said anything to her. And I was kind of impressed by the teacher just letting her do her thing because I sort of felt like, gosh, like I wish she would just join the group. Like this just sort of drove me crazy, but at the same time appreciated it. So yeah, I don't know. I just wonder if you have any thoughts in a classroom setting of how to deal with a rebel. Right. Well, that's a fantastic example. And it's funny that you mentioned that she stood in the front because whenever I speak, I ask people like, what's your tendency? And I've noticed that there's a very strong pattern of rebels sitting either in the very front or the very back or like on the sides. It's very, oh, it's very funny. Yeah, absolutely. And one other thing about rebels is they want to be, they want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. And so even if they're coming to a class, it's like, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. And I think as if you're the instructor particularly, but maybe if you're even somebody else in the class, you might have a feeling of like, well, this is dis disrespectful to the teacher and to the class because like, why are you here if you don't want to get with the program? And like, why do you think that you should be able to do something? It's distracting to others. Like we're here because we want to do this. And like, why aren't you doing it now? And the fact is just don't take it personally. And I think this is one of the reasons the four tendencies can minimize conflict because you can just be like, hey, you know what? I think I've spotted a rebel in the corner. And it has nothing to do with me as the instructor. I don't have to take it personally. I don't have to feel like this person's undermining me or challenging my authority. And if I'm in, if I'm in the class, I don't have to feel like this person's kind of like, you know, is trying to like somehow antagonize me or disrespect me. They're like this all the time. They're like this at home. They're like this at work. This is the way the rebels are no matter where they go. So I don't have to take that personally. Now, you know, and if it becomes disruptive to the class, one of the things you can always do with a rebel is information consequences choice. So give them the information they need, tell them the consequences of their action and let them choose. So if you feel like it's really disru disruptive to the class, you could say something like, you know what, when you do something that's completely out of step, I feel like it's taking other people out of their concentration. It's distracting them. It's taking them out of the moment. And so if you want to do it, I really, it, you know, you need to stand in the back so that you're not in people's sight lines or go to a different class. So it's just information consequences choice. Or you might say like, hey, you know, in this yoga class, we want to send the message that there's room for everybody to do everything. Somebody wants to do something totally different, but they want to be part of our energy. We welcome that. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of like, what do you think what's going on? You can embrace it or you can kind of try to do something about it. What It has nothing to do with you. It's just like them being them. And I think, you know, another way the tendencies probably comes up a lot in in classes with yoga and with many kinds of classes is that for obligers to meet inner expectations, they really depend on outer accountability. And whenever obligers say to me something like, well, I really want to get back into yoga. I'm like, man, you got to take a class or you got to do it with a friend. Like you need some kind of outer accountability for it. And I talked to one instructor and I can't remember if she was a yoga instructor or a different kind of class, but anyway, she, I gave a little presentation and she said, you know, I always used to say, 
I'll be here next week to show people that I would be back. And she goes, now I'm going to start saying, I'll see you next week. Meaning like, I want them to feel like I'm going to be expecting them. I'm like, that's great because for an obliger, every little bit of outer accountability is going to help them show up and they, and they want to show up. Like that's why they've signed up for your class. They want to come. They want to be doing yoga or like emailing people like, Hey, I haven't seen you in a couple of weeks. Is everything okay? Like just so people know, like, okay, you know, don't think, no, I haven't noticed not because I want your money, but because I want you to be part of this. And maybe you're waiting to see if anybody notices. And if I notice that you're not there, Hmm. then you're going to feel like, oh gosh, my instructor noticed that I'm not there. Yeah. That's really smart. I mean, that, that could even apply to people who do a teacher training and are sort of not, what am I trying to say? Like Jason and I talk a lot about how there are all these yoga teacher trainings, but there's, there's not very much mentoring after the training. And so Mm. people will finish a training and then they go out to be a yoga teacher. And it's really overwhelming to like stare into a classroom that's empty for the first few weeks or has only two people when you're used to going to a class with 25 people. It can be really overwhelming. So, I mean, thinking about that in terms of being an obliger, mentoring would help an obliger a lot after doing a training. Yeah. Yeah. Mentoring would help, but also just forming a group with other people who are kind of newbies. Like Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to be guided by somebody who be nice. They might be able to give you greater counsel. But like I have an app called the better app, which is just this free app. And one of the things it's all about the four tendencies, but one of the things you can do is you can join or start accountability groups. And so if you knew a couple, like you went through some training and you said to a couple of other people, Hey, we're obligers here. We're trying to launch our careers. Why don't we form an accountability group and just check in with each other once a week and be like, okay, did you do this? Did you do this? How did it go. Okay. I experienced this too. We get energy from other people. We get ideas from other people, but even the idea that they're expecting to hear from us a lot of times will help people follow through. Another thing that obligers can often do is think about their future self. Now Gretchen doesn't really feel like doing it, but future Gretchen will be really disappointed if now Gretchen doesn't do that. So yeah, I don't feel like signing up for that class, but future Gretchen is going to be really disappointed if I don't take advantage of that opportunity. So I have to do it for future Gretchen. I've been amazed at how many obligers can be accountable to their future selves, which is, or one thing that obligers can do is think about if you say yes to someone you're going to say no to someone else. Or if you say yes to something, how you could be helping someone else. So you could say to yourself like, gosh, yoga has meant so much to me in my life. I would love to think that I could help other people find that in their lives. But if I don't get out there with my teaching, then there's all these people who aren't going to be reached and they might never be reached. I might be the the one person that they would bang into that could bring them into yoga. And so I need to get myself out there. And so, and so that I can start being that presence in the world, because that's how I'm going to be able to do for others, what other, what other people have done for me. And so it's kind of an obligation to like these future people that you will encounter. It's like, well, I got to get out there because I want to serve them in the future. And the only way I can serve them in the future is if I kind of go through these painful startup times now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You could just talk about this all day. I can tell. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I love it. Okay. My husband would not disagree with that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. But what about an upholder in a classroom? Are they just like the perfect student? Because they, you know, it seems like they would be, they meet their deadlines. Yeah. Well, I mean, upholders are not the ones that cause issues and things like that. Okay. 
they've got their own weaknesses and their own limitations. They aren't the kinds of things that will typically show up in a class like this. But, you know, it's funny. I have a podcast called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and I'm in a polder. My sister's an obliger, Elizabeth. She's my co-host. And, uh, and because we're sisters, we don't let each other get away with much. So my sister is often pointing out, like, how she sees the kind of the darker side of upholders. And one of them is rigidity. And so what you might see with an upholder is like, I've got to go to this yoga class every, you know, three times a week, even if I'm sick, like, I don't care if I'm going to give other people the flu because I've got to go. (laughs) Or even though I've got company in from out of town, I feel like I have to, I've locked into this idea that I'm going to do it. Or like, maybe I don't even want to go away for the weekend because I'm like, oh, I don't want to miss that yoga class. And so when you see some, sometimes it's like tightening where the where rules get tighter and tighter on upholders. And so it's often helpful for reminder, upholders to remind themselves or people around upholders to remind themselves that like, you know, you know, yoga is always here for you. You know, you might have to go away for a week and that's okay. You mm-hmm. know, it's not going to go away. You know, this yeah. is, this is like you miss one time. That's, that's okay. And it's about, and yoga is about tuning into how you actually feel from day to day. So if you're really sick, you can tune into that and actually take care of yourself a different way. You know, See, This is where it gets tricky with upholders. And this is the thing where my sister's like completely puzzled by me. The thing about being an upholder is that often for an upholder, the most comforting and reassuring thing is to stick to the existing expectation. So like maybe I feel sick with the flu, but I'm like, I would feel better if I went to my yoga class and just did what I could rather than skip it. Mm-hmm. I could so imagine myself doing that. That's what feels right. That's what feels comforting. And that's where the rigidity can come in. It feel it looks rigid from the outside, but to the to, to the upholder, it doesn't feel rigid. It feels kind of freeing. Mm-hmm. So that's something to think about. But for an upholder, it's kind of like, well, you're going to get other people sick because if you right. come in here, like we're all in close quarters here, our hands are down on the floor. Like, again, it's sort of an outer expectation. It's like, yeah, you want to come to yoga, but like, believe me, that's not good for anybody else. You need you owe it to other people to take time off. So the one thing that I recognized in terms of rigidity with an upholder is being rigid about time in such a way that even if it inconveniences someone else, an upholder will stick to like the assigned time. Yes. Because, you know, when I, as you read about an upholder, you're kind of like, oh, these are like the perfect people. They just get everything done and they, you know, they meet the outer expectations and they decide things for themselves and they meet the inner expectations. I recognize that, that, you know, every once in a while an upholder will seemingly be rude because they are going to just, they're going to meet their own and their expectations no matter what. No, that's 100% correct. And I would say that is something, there is a kind of a coldness that others can perceive about upholders because it's sort of like, well, I got to do what I got to get, I got to do, even if that means not helping you out. Now, this is why obligers are the rock of the world because obligers are the ones that will really like, you know, it's like, let's say you and I both have big reports due tomorrow and you say to me, hey, can you help me proofread my report tonight? And I'm like, no, I'm sorry because my report's due tomorrow too, so I just don't have time to help you out. To me as an upholder, that would seem completely appropriate. Like I need to take care of my own project so I don't have the wherewithal to help you. Whereas an obliger would be like, oh yeah, I really, I, I, sh- I should make time to help. 
you can have two schools of thought about what's the right thing to do or what's the nicer thing to do or the best thing to do. It's just people come from different places. And in some situations, being an upholder is an advantage. And in some situations, being an obliger is an advantage or having an obliger around you or an upholder around you. But I think what's helpful is just to understand how different people can see the same circumstance differently. And so it's like if you're if you look at me and you're like, oh, my God, that is so cold. I would have totally helped you. It's like, yeah, that's true. It's not like I don't care about you. It's just that I'm kind of operating under a different system, a different perspective. And for me, when I'm like, why are you leaving this to the last minute? If you wanted somebody to proofread it, like you shouldn't have left it to the last minute because obviously I'm not going to have time to do it the night before. So like your lack of planning is not my emergency. Again, it's not like there's anything wrong with you. It's just that you have a different, you come into it with a different perspective. Never occurred to you that I wouldn't proofread it the night before. That seems like a perfectly appropriate thing to ask. So it's just that people are coming from different places. It's not that one person's right and one person's wrong. It's just I feel like when you understand how people can see things differently, it minimizes conflict and mis- misunderstanding. Yeah, I think that's so nice. There, I wrote down understanding fosters tolerance. That's something yes. that you wrote in your book. And that's great. I mean, obviously, we need a lot more tolerance right now in our in our society. And starting by trying to understand the other person's perspective is great. And like you said earlier, about someone not taking a rebel personally or not taking a questioner's questions, endless questions personally, you can take an upholder who makes a decision to finish their own project first, rather than helping you, you can practice not taking that personally. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. It's not that they're not considerate for you. I mean, and this is why it's sometimes I think, you know, how you're saying that you you think you and your daughter have the same tendency. It's like a couple of my really good friends are upholders. And I really appreciate it because it's like, I totally get it. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I have a level of understanding of, from them and the, and the way they behave. Like, when my law school roommate is an upholder. She's even more of an, of an upholder than I am, which is, I have to say, saying a lot. And she mentioned to me offhandedly one time, like, oh, yeah, I think I've only missed going to the gym like five times in the last year. And I was like, that's cool. Like, I didn't think much of it. And I happened to repeat it to a couple of other people at a party. And they were like, they thought it was like almost sick. Like, Hmm. that was like a level of going to the gym that was just like uh, unthinkable and like so crazy and out of this world. And I was like, that's interesting, because to me, that doesn't seem like that big a deal. It seems impressive, but it doesn't seem that big a deal. Whereas other people were staggered by it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, I get it where she's coming from. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like routine is comforting to an upholder. Well, they really like when things execute as planned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they do Mm -hmm. tend to like things like routines. That's Mm -hmm. exactly. And this is where you see kind of the roots of conflict, because like, if you're a rebel, rebels tend to really, really highly value spontaneity. They want to do what they feel like when they feel like it. So like take a yoga class, for example, they might go to the yoga class and do something completely different, or they might have a schedule of yoga classes all over the city. And then they're like, oh, I feel like doing this kind of yoga today, or I feel like doing that kind of yoga today. They wouldn't go to the same time. Or maybe they're going to go to a huge gym that has tons of options. Oh, and today I feel like doing yoga, but tomorrow I feel like doing spin class. And that's fine because I'm just at a big gym and I can do whatever I want. Or maybe I'm going to do some really unconventional, unusual kind of yoga that no one else has heard of. It's just like me and this class of 10 people, and we're the only people doing this yoga. That's how a rebel would do it, whereas an upholder would be like, oh, I love the fact that I go every, you know, like I, my yoga class is at 1015 every Wednesday morning, and that's the way I want it. And I don't want it to move to 1030 because it's at 1015. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, people are so quirky. We're all so quirky. We are. Just slightly different topic, but I've heard you talk about on your show and on, a, on actually the Dan Harris podcast about not eating carbs. 
and Mm -hmm. not having sugar. And, you know, as a cancer survivor, I've done the no sugar thing and I've gone, I've done like the cold turkey, no sugar for three months. And then I went like fell off the wagon and then I tried moderating and I thought that was working. And then week after week after week, it just increased. I find myself like, oh, I'll just have one more bite of my daughter's cookie or like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll have, I'll join her today. I'll have an ice cream today. And so I'm back into abstaining and it's mm-hmm. going really well. I can't believe it. And you said something that I thought was so great that I just wanted to share with everyone when you were talking to Dan Harris, which is you said you got so tired of the boring conversation in your head about whether you were going to or whether you were not going to. So you call that being an abstainer, a person who just does better with just abstaining from something altogether. But you say that some other people can kind of moderate things better and they do better when they're allowed to, when something's not quite so taboo and they can incorporate it a little bit. Does that fall into any of the four tendencies at all? I'm just trying to suss everything out. No, it doesn't correlate because like I'm an abstainer and an upholder, but then I know a lot of upholders who are, who are moderators. And so I don't think it has to do with the four tendencies. I think it's operating on a different aspect of your personality. Mm-hmm. But this thing about, about sugar, it's, it's really, really fascinating. And in my previous book, which was called Better Than Before, is all about the 21 strategies that we can use to make or break our habits. And one of the things that was very interesting to me was how all of those strategies might come into play with something like quitting sugar, which is a really, really, for many people, very, very challenging behavior change. And kind of like all the different pieces that went into it. And you're right. For me, I found that abstaining was so freeing. Like, I love it. And like, I abstain from so much. I don't eat sugar, flour, pasta, rice, starchy vegetables. Oh, wow. You know, I yeah. mean, I eat nuts and, and leafy green vegetables that have carbs, but that's about my, the only way I get carbs. Maybe like, you know, gr- Greek yogurt. And I love it. That is so much easier for me. I love it, love it, love it. But like, that's because that's the kind of person I am. And one of the things I tried to do and better than before is really say like, there's no right way or wrong way. There's no best way. It's whatever works for you. And like, as you go through it, you learn like, well, that didn't work so well, or maybe that would work better. Or this is the loophole that I'm invoking. You know, we often have these loopholes, like life's too short not to have a cookie, or it's going to hurt my daughter's feeling <laughs> if I don't have a piece yes. of her birthday cake, or oh, what's, man, one, sh- what's one cupcake? Oh my gosh, in a lifetime of eating, what is it? what difference does it make if I have one cupcake? Or I've been so good, starting tomorrow, you know, I deserve to have this cupcake, or oh, it doesn't matter what I do today, because starting tomorrow, I'm going to be amazing, or, or oh, well, here I am, you know, oh, I've got this big bowl of Halloween candy that's out, you know, that's out on the front table, uh, unwrapped, but uh, that, I'm just, I'm just, it's just there for like decoration, but now I'm eating it. That's, you know, there, so these are all loopholes that people invoke. There's a lot of things that you can throw at something like a complex habit, like quitting sugar. For the most part, the bottom line is there is no one right way. You really have to just think about yourself and try to use as many strategies as you can that work for you. And then if something doesn't work, move on. I mean, this is the thing about you, you talking about abstainers and moderators, A lot of people think that you should be a moderator. And certainly people constantly tell me I should be moderate. They're like, it's not so, it's not healthy to be so rigid. You should learn to be able to have a little bit. You should be able to have one brownie. They have not read the research. I'm a questioner. I have. You're doing the right thing. (laughs) I've read all the research. It's, yeah. But for a lot of people, it's like, oh yeah, if you try this, it's just easier. It's just easier. It's not that it takes more willpower and like, I've got it. It's like, no, this is actually easier for me. There's a lot of things going on there. And, you know, there's planned exceptions, which is when you want to, like, take a break from a habit. Like, if you did want to have that cupcake, 
you know, how I would suggest that you would set that up so that you would not interfere with your general habit of not eating sugar. And anyway, it's it's a very big subject. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating subject. I'm going to go back and read that. That sounds really helpful because I'm really in it right now where I'm like, I'm abstaining and it's amazing, but I'm planning right now to only abstain like through the holidays, which is a huge deal for me. You know, usually I'm just, like I said, I'm an emotionally driven person and I like to get together and have pumpkin pie with my sister and you know, the whole thing. And Oh my God, this is like, like, this is the strategy of other people. This is the strategy of identity. This is the strategy of rewards. You've set up a, a finish line for yourself that I have to say, that's a very dangerous thing to do I know. when you're trying to face, face a habit. Cause you're like, I'm getting through the holidays. So what happens when the holidays are over? It's like all bets are off, right? Yeah. That's not really what you want. You no. want to be eating healthfully forever. So yes, I get into that in like excruciating detail and better than before, where I go through the 21 strategies that you might put into play around it. Mm -hmm. Cause it's not like you can't ever have pumpkin pie again. Like you can, if you want it, you're a grown up. you set the rules, you can do what you want, but you might be able to set it up in a way that would work better mm -hmm. for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. So like for you, I would say like, what is the essence of the holiday in general? No, yeah. Like you just said pumpkin pie with your sister. Is that the essence of the holiday for you? No, it's not. What? No, but I mean, I mean food wise. Oh, food wise. My sister says stuffing at Thanksgiving for her is like, that's like the quintessential food. If she doesn't have stuffing, she feels like it hasn't really been Thanksgiving. Yeah, I would say stuffing and pumpkin pie. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. for, for Thanksgiving? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, pick one. What's the, what's the one? Pumpkin pie. Okay, so I would say, this is just me being a happiness bully. That's a, on the Happier podcast. My sister often calls me a happiness bully. So my, my thought to you would be, think about it this way. It's not that you're abstaining through the holidays. This is the way you eat forever. This is just the way you eat. You basically don't eat sugar. Why? Because you're a person, you're a cancer survivor. You don't want to eat sugar. It's not good for you. It's easier for you to have almost none. Mm -hmm. So you're not, you don't eat, you're a person who doesn't eat sugar. Mm -hmm. However, on Thanksgiving, you're going to have a piece of pumpkin pie and you're going to look forward to that piece of pumpkin pie. It is delicious. It is the quintessential food of Thanksgiving. You are going to enjoy every mouthful. You're going to have one piece and you're going to look forward to it with pleasure and you're going to look back on it with pleasure. But do you eat sugar? Are you done now with your abstaining? Have you finished it? Like, no. Okay. Because basically you don't. This is a planned exception, which means you've thought about it in advance, you executed as planned, and you look back on it with pleasure. But it doesn't change the landscape in mm -hmm. which you live. It's a planned exception. Okay. But it's not like you live a life that is so... You know, like I don't mind never eating sugar, but my sister's like, you're like, you're crazy. <laughs> Most people want to have exceptions from time to time. And you can have an exception from time to time. It works much better when it's a planned exception rather than like an on off switch, because then it's like I'm off and now I'm back on. Uh huh. <laughs> and it's way more fun to be on. And once you're on, it's hard to go off. And every time you go off, it's going to get harder. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've noticed that, but starting over starts to get harder and harder. Yeah. It's kind of fun the first time, and then it gets harder. Yeah. Yeah. That's my happiness bully piece. I um, like it. I, no. I, I, I give a lot of unrequested advice, but I would just think about that. Think about that. Read better than before. There's, there's 21 strategies. There will be many that will speak to you. Many that you'll just say like, no, this isn't for me. I'm going to skip this one. Great. Because it's a big, it's a big habit. It's a big habit. It is. No, it's huge. I talk about it a lot on the podcast because I think it's an important thing to talk about. Um, you know, we're just so inundated right now with unhealthy choices around us, unhealthy food choices around us. And I think it just, it becomes unconscious, 
even just shining the light of consciousness on it for people and being like, this is what's out there. This is what we accept as completely normal. And this is what it's doing to us. I guess that's the questioner in me. I just, I, I like to look at it from an information point of view and just. And just so people know, like, I would not have thought this was possible, but since I totally give up sugar, it's like, it just, all that goes away. It yeah. just vanishes. It's like, it's like they're advertising dog food. It's just not food that I ever eat. You could put a plate of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies in front of me at a three hour conference, boring conference. And I would just not eat them. I never eat it. Wow. I just don't eat it. It doesn't bother me. And so it just goes away. So this idea that you are constantly being assailed by irresistible messages is not true. Yeah. I, be, I mean, I'm, not, I'm saying this is what's true for me. And I'm a very particular person. So I'm not saying everybody would get to where I am in the way that I got there. But there is a place where you can get beyond mm -hmm being constantly tantalized. And again, like you were saying before, that idea of the noise. Can I have one? Can I have two? Can I have three? Ugh. One today, one tomorrow. I deserve it. I need it. It's my birthday. It's raining. I'm going to be so good tomorrow. Life's too short not to live a little. <laughs> Just blah, 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 blah. Oh my gosh. It's so exhausting. That's part of why I wrote better than before. Because I'm like, habits can kind of get you out of that whole cycle. And it's so powerful. Yeah. It frees you up to think about much more interesting things. Oh my, yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Infinitely more interesting. Yes. Yeah. And so, so there's ways, there's lots of strategies that you can use. I've talked to many, many, many people who had been frustrated because they had tried and failed so many times. And what they realized is they were just doing it in the way that was wrong for them. Because like their sister was trying to tell them to do it a certain way or their nutritionist was trying to convince them to do it a certain way. And they're like, it just didn't work for them. But there's other things to try. There's a, there's a lot of other things to try when you know what like the whole panoply of options is. And also your four tendencies. It's like if you're a questioner, go deep into that questioner tendency. What are you expecting of yourself and why? The more you know about why you want to eat a certain way, the more convinced you are, the more just like totally in that you are, the more naturally your actions are going to follow. Whereas with an obliger, I'm going to be like, no, I wouldn't worry about that as much as I'd worry about outer accountability. Are you setting a good example for your family? Are you maintaining your health because you need to be around for a long time to take care of others? Are you going to be a better parent, a better colleague, a better friend, a better spouse if you're calmer in your mind and you know that you're calmer when you eat a certain way or get enough sleep or take, you know, or read more or whatever it is? I would hit that outer account. You know, this mm -hmm. is why a lot of people do that with Weight Watchers. It's, it's outer accountability. And for a lot of people, like that is really a, a crucial piece of it. And then for other people, it doesn't matter as much. You yeah. know, so they don't really need the accountability part. So that's another thing is when you know what you need, you also kind of know what you don't need. So you don't have to waste your time with a lot of stuff. Like I realize as an upholder, I don't really need a lot of outer accountability. Same. Well, outer, outer accountability is very time consuming. Mm -hmm. So if you don't need it, like it's nice to know that you don't need it. Yeah, I've always been so confused by like the outer accountability of joining, you know, I don't know, some online fitness group or online, I don't know, I just, it does not resonate with me at all. It feels like annoying. It feels like intrusive into my process and my life. I just want to, I just, yeah, I just want to know why I have to do it and then I can do it. But see, that is so questioner. And it's funny because questioners and upholders will often say to obligers things like, well, if it's important to you, you should just be able to do it. Or like, I don't want to be your babysitter. You should, if you want to go to the gym, go. If you don't want to go to the gym, don't go. But I'm not going to keep checking up on you. And it's like, yes, I need you to check up on me because I need outer accountability, you know? Or it's like, if I want to do something, I do need to take a class. Like my college roommate is like, is like huge into yoga. I mean, does hours and hours of yoga. 
every day. And I remember at one point her motto was yoga is free, meaning like I don't have to go to a class to take yoga. I can do it on my own because she was like a grad student at that part at that point. And I was and now looking back on it, I'm like, well, it's funny that she could do that because for some people, they need the class. They need to go to the class. Yeah. They can't just they couldn't just like do it on their own. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why it's good that we have online yoga classes now, because then you can fit it in anytime if you don't yeah. have time to leave your house and go to the class. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Gretchen, this was so much fun. Thank you so much. I know oh, thank that you. people are going to get so much from it. It's so interesting. And yeah, people can go online and take your quiz. It's at, can you say the URL one more time? It's happiercast.com slash quiz. Or you can just go to my general website, GretchenRubin.com. And there's all kinds of resources and there's the quiz and there's all kinds of stuff there. Discussion guides and tip guides and blog posts about all different subjects. So yeah, at GretchenRubin.com. And then also we talk about the four tendencies a lot on the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast. And yes. As I say, my sister is an obliger. So she represents a bigger slice of humanity than I do. Most people are like, I'm like Elizabeth. I'm like, yes, you are. Because you're obliger. <laughs> you guys are a great balance. I, oh, I, I love you. listening to you. It's great. Thanks. Thanks again. Well, thank you. So I feel like we could talk all day. This is so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will put show notes at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 75, and I'll put links to Gretchen's website and her quiz and her app and her book and all of the amazing things that she has to offer. And again, please let me know your type post on Instagram, whether you're an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel, and use the hashtag yogalandstories, and we'll, we'll figure out where we all lie within the spectrum. Until next week, everyone, enjoy your practice. Someone.